Well, it's good to be with you today. Thank you for the kind invitation to be with you in the Lord's house and for the opportunity to join you for a few moments in the Word of God. Uh, to those of you who are online, I was with you last Sunday, and it's great to be with you again. Uh, we are presently taking a journey through the Gospel book of Mark. And this book is found in the New Testament portion of the Bible. So feel free if you brought your Bibles or you have them with you on your coffee table or kitchen table to open it up to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be taking a look at chapter 6. And our series here is called The Power of the Kingdom. Now last week, after Pastor Trent had given us a quick reflection on whether we would fight, flight, or freeze if a tarantula called on us, I know exactly which one I would do, probably all three at the same time, right? We moved on then to the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, where Mark testifies to some storms that he experienced. And the first storm he witnessed was outside of the boat where the disciples were. And the second storm raged within the man who was demon-possessed. And we're reminded that real storms need a real Savior. And I so appreciated Pastor Trent's nugget of wisdom that he mined out of this passage, because in that Galilean land, while in the presence of this demon-possessed man, those Jewish disciples were standing in a space that was as unholy as they could have ever found themselves. And right in the middle of that storm stood Jesus in all of his holiness. And Christ's holiness does not need to be protected by us or polished up by us. In fact, holiness is not to be contained. Rather, it affects change throughout the world like a city on a hill. Wow. And then we were challenged to go out into our week and choose to walk in the Spirit of God. And I would love to know how all of you did that this last week. I would like to know how you fared in the storm that you may have faced, whether outwardly or inwardly, trusting in the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we're going to look more at the narrative found in the Gospel of Mark. And I would like to do that uh, by starting to read Mark chapter 6, the first 13 verses. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, it says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Do you have an image in your mind of your hometown? Jesus went to his hometown, and he was accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, making his relatives, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people 
and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not even an extra shirt. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now as we begin, I want to ask you this. Does anyone remember this moment? We're going to have a picture come up here. And I know I'm dating myself. Do you recognize that couple? It was Wayne Gretzky and Janet Jones. They were married on July 16 of 1988 in Edmonton, Alberta. That's like 33 years ago. I'm telling you, that was a day of celebration. In fact, it has even been dubbed the Royal Event of Canada, right? Extra police were on hand to help maintain the crowds that waited for hours around Joseph's Basilica Church in Edmonton, and people just wanted to catch a glimpse of this couple. And it was only, uh, it was less than a month later, actually, that Wayne Gretzky was traded from the Edmonton Oilers to the L.A. Kings. Well, that was a ruckus. You know, Wayne Gretzky was a victim in all of this, said all the Oilers fans. The Oilers owner at the time, Peter Pocklington, was skewered in the public media. And it was the beginning of the downturn of the Oilers dynasty, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's interesting, however, that even though Gretzky's originally from Ontario and has lived the rest of his hockey and post-hockey career in the States, one would think he was from the city of Edmonton, Alberta, right? Every time some change or transition needs to happen with the Edmonton Oilers, Gretzky's name comes up as a possible replacement. And you remember that first huge outdoor hockey game that happened in Edmonton? Wayne Gretzky had to come up and be a part of it, right? He is the favored homeboy, as it were. But it can be a hard thing to come back home, can't it? Just ask this fellow. Justin Drew Bieber is a Canadian singer and an actor and a songwriter. And a talent manager discovered him through his YouTube videos. Justin today is only 27 years old. But he was born in London, Ontario. Now, there are a few people from his hometown who seem to love him. There's even a museum of sorts that are chronicling his rise to fame there. But so many others say they can't stand him. And they're boycotting all of his music and his concerts and everything. I'm sure they don't even know him personally. But it can be tough to go home, can't it? Well, in our scripture passage today, 
we find that Jesus' homecoming was perhaps less like a Gretzky and more like a Bieber. And so I want us to take a look closer at our passage today. These stories that we find in verse 13, again, are part of the Mark and Sandwich that Pastor Trent had shared last week. But they really are distinct because they stand in such vivid contrast to one another. Which brings us to our first point for today. And the first point is Jesus' failure. You see, the first story we read is a story of failure. You know, after an initial enthusiasm, the people of Jesus' hometown, it says, turned against him. He was, Mark tells us in verse 5, get this, unable to do any miracles there. Jesus of Nazareth was unable to perform a miracle? When you read that verse, did you just gloss over that part? Right? The second scene, beginning at verse 7, is a story of success, however. It says the disciples cast out many demons, and they anointed many sick people and healed them. Do you find that odd? Right? Jesus, who up to this point in Mark had been teaching with power and healing and casting out demons. And just in the previous chapter, chapter 5, we read of the accounts where Jesus healed the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He raised from the dead 12-year-old daughter of Jairus. Those stories. And now we come back to the hometown of Jesus. And Mark's telling us that Jesus could do nothing. Well, so often the disciples who miss the point or scrap amongst themselves or sometimes are even missing in action are the ones going out two by two and they're powerful and they're effective ministering. These two stories are so different. And don't you find that difference unexpected in the passage? But when we put them together, I believe that these two scenes have something to tell you and I today. Not only about God and God's power, but it's about our part in the power of God. Together, these two stories tell us about the power of faith and also something about the power of sin. There's power in sin. It's not just a whoopsie or a mistake. There's something about sin that has impact in the spiritual kingdom. But together, these two tell us something about what happens when ego and pride get in the way, when you and I get in the way. What happens, though, when God is allowed to take central place? So, what happened? Well, let's look at that first story, shall we? Part one of our text, Jesus' visit to his own hometown. Now, we might imagine that things would go well. We might assume that Jesus would be received with joy by those who knew him well. And initially, he was. The people of Nazareth, those who had known him as a little boy and as a young man, were surprised or astonished by his wisdom and his power. But their surprise quickly turned to offense. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? 
and they took offense at him. Now, the Greek word used here could also be interpreted as scandalized. In other words, they weren't astounded or amazed in a positive way at all. The rumors of his miracles in previous towns, it says that they ended up being aghast or shocked. Now, what happened here? Because Jesus was one of them, or at least recently he had been one of them. And right there might lie the problem. You see, that one who had so recently just been one of them should now be seen as far above them. And maybe that felt like a slight to them. Who does Jesus think he is? Right? Why him? Why not me? Just yesterday, it seemed they'd all looked down at him as a boy. But today, his words and demeanor suggested they should be looking up at him. And I wonder, was that hard in their pride? That one of their hometown boys had made good, perhaps? One commentator said, you know, there's a warning here to us all. Don't let the blessing of an earlier or different relationship blind you at a later time to a true messenger of God. But perhaps this matter goes even deeper than this all-too-human tendency to envy one another or to feel slighted by the success of someone that we knew or thought we knew back in the day. Let me ask this question. Who today would we think of as Jesus' hometown crowd? Who would have been his own people? Perhaps it would have been us, the church. Right? Does it ever come about that at least sometimes we are those who are blind to God's presence? Those of us who are part of church, that it's we who are indifferent to the power of God? Is it even remotely possible that we who think we know Jesus best may at times honor him the least? You know, in his spiritual autobiography, Now and Then, Frederick Buchner writes of his encounter with Agnes Sanford, a Christian healer. Buchner says the most vivid image that she had was of Jesus standing in church services all over Christendom with his hands tied behind his back, unable to do any mighty works because those who led the services either didn't expect him to do them or didn't dare ask him to do them. Now that's quite an image, isn't it? Jesus standing in the church with his hands tied behind his back. And then Buchner added this. He said, I recognized immediately my own kinship with those ministers. And as I read, I whispered my own confession. I recognize my kinship with you. You see, is it possible that we in the church, Jesus' latter-day hometown crowd, are sometimes the least likely to be calling upon him? the last ones to be turning to him, less likely than many others to be open to his power and to his promises and with all the mystery that that entails. Now, often today in the church, it seems that we're so much more focused on ourselves. Honestly, the conversations I've had the last few months, people who have taken offense at one another, that say their rights have been trampled on, they take offense, they don't extend the grace. 
And we dwell on those kinds of things rather than dwelling on God and on his power and on his truth. And so our first point is called the failure of Jesus. Because somehow, for whatever the reason, this hometown crowd refused to acknowledge Jesus, which somehow seemed to limit his power. Which when you think about God having the ability to raise a dead girl to life with a single word, or that woman who had been bleeding for so long and all she had to do was touch the cloak. That's really pretty astounding that he was unable to do anything. So does this not sit funny to you? Is there something else at work here rather than Jesus' ability or not to heal people? And Mark seems to suggest that Jesus' lack of reception back home affects his ability to work. His ability to manifest the kingdom of God through what he calls deeds of power. Now I find that troubling because when I thought back about it, I thought, you know, I think I've been taught perhaps that God doesn't need us. Right? That God isn't inhibited by our lack of faith. That what I believe or think or do doesn't matter even a little bit in order for God to accomplish his purposes. But David Lowe, who is a senior pastor in a Lutheran church, this is what he said. Isn't one of the central elements of this doctrine of justification by grace through faith? Isn't it precisely because it is all up to God? That God's the one who justifies? Right? Our faith is really just an awareness and trust in what God has done. Would you agree? Yes, you can nod your head yes. I I believe the answer is yes. But what if, what if what's at stake here is not a matter of our eternal destinies alone? After all, it's not like Jesus could not do anything in this passage in chapter, uh, chapter 6 of Mark. I'm sure the few people that it said he did heal, I'm sure they were glad of the touch of Jesus. But what if rather Mark is simply inviting us to ponder the fact that we, that you and me, actually have something to do? That we have an important role in the kingdom of God, in the manifestation of the kingdom. So to say it another way, what if this isn't just about our salvation? What if it's about the role each one of us is invited to play in? to sense and experience and make known God's will and work in our world and our communities today? Is it in fact a possibility that Jesus was unable to do more in his hometown because the people did not want to engage with him? I invite you to consider with me for a few moments in what ways are we encouraging the coming of the kingdom of God in our lives? In our homes? How about in our community? In what ways might you and I be inhibiting the work of God and resisting his activity in our lives? And so we run around and we engage in Bible studies and programmings and Sunday mornings, And we think we're being effective. 
But really, friends, we're just running in circles. Where is God's kingdom at work? And how do we inhibit the work of God? You might be asking that to yourselves. Well, there's some area, perhaps, some regret that you can't get over for yourself, some grudge, perhaps, that you can't let go of, some hurt that has come to define us, maybe some addiction that's imprisoning us, some anger that has taken hold of us, and we're having difficulty in trusting that to God. Now, I want you to notice, those questions aren't about the quality of our salvation, but they're about the character of our Christian life. And then it says it's Jesus' turn to be amazed. Which brings us to our second point. We had the failure of Jesus. Now I want to talk about the success of the disciples. You see, when Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, he did not, now it must have been painful for him, he did not turn and reject them and to return. Right? He did not take offense at them. He only sadly shook his head and moved on. And he moved on by sending out his disciples two by two to preach, to heal, and to teach. Verse 7 says that Jesus sends the disciples to go out and take authority over the unclean spirits, to be amazing, to embody and participate in the reign of God that was at hand. And then verse 12 says they were supposed to preach that all might repent. Now that word repent literally in the, in the original language means a change of mind. It means doing a 180. Where I was continuing on this journey of anger, I'm going to do a 180 and walk the journey of forgiveness. And one could well ask, what are we supposed to change from what and change to what? And if we ask this question, change to what, I think most of us would say we're supposed to change to believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And yet in this book of Mark, I think what we need to keep in mind is that Jesus was preparing his disciples to do something. And do you see what he tells them to preach about? He doesn't say, I want you to preach about me or preach about the Messiah. They are to preach that repentance is necessary. And by attempting over and over again to make Jesus the Messiah, people were missing the point of Jesus' message, which was that the reign of God was present, was among them, and that they were invited to participate in it. But as long as they had the Messiah to embody the reign and not themselves, they were missing their whole participation part. So when it says to participate, it doesn't mean to follow, because follow doesn't just mean to marvel or look at the Messiah. It's more about joining along. It's more about taking up the message, taking up the cross that is central to that, and believing by living in the present reign of God. It's delivering those who are oppressed, healing the sick, journeying with them. So yes, repentance can be reconciled with turning from something and then turning to follow Jesus. But I tell you, it's a real change of mind when we participate in the kingdom of God. So we're not just repenting with our mouths and with our words. We're following up that with our actions. 
And then Jesus said something interesting to the disciples. He said they were to travel light or to take nothing for the journey but the clothes on their back. Now, I'm one of those people that you might call a defensive packer. I like, now this isn't me, by the way, but I like to be prepared for the unexpected. So I'm not just packing one pair of shoes, right? I need shoes to match the various outfits that I might wear because I need my options, right? I pack a mirror in case the ones where I'm going are too far away or too high up, which isn't very hard, or uh, there might even be non-existence. I will pack my own hair dryer, even if the hotel says they provide one, because theirs always catches my hair, right? I always bring my own brand of shampoo and conditioner and body soap, and I always have more than one hair tie, ladies, right? Because they seem to go missing. Traveling light, as Jesus calls his disciples to do today, certainly makes no sense to me. Right? What about the unexpected? And certainly these disciples were heading into uncharted territory. Now it's true, of course, that you and I live in a different time than Jesus and his disciples. I could try and justify my own shampoo and conditioner because it's true that hospitality to the stranger played a much larger role in that place and time. So it is more likely that their needs would have been met regardless of what they had packed or not for themselves. But even so, Jesus' words got me thinking. And for that reason, I know they still speak to us today. Sometimes I wonder just what all of the baggage I carry gets in the way of me experiencing. You know, as I turn my attention in the airport to guard my belongings in the airport, right? My carry-on my handbag that has my passport and my wallet, my laptop bag, how less am I able to reach out with a gesture of kindness to another? Or as I rely on my own careful planning for every eventuality, how am I less open to what God may have waiting for me? You see, if I already have everything I need, how am I less able to receive the gifts of those that I meet along the way. And in these times of challenge and change for the church, I don't know if you've experienced yet, where things have changed a little bit since uh, March of 2020, God may be calling us to lighten our load. He might even be helping us to do that. Right? And I would say that we need to lighten our load of more than just our physical items. God is calling us to let go of some weighty assumptions about how we've always done things. Perhaps God is telling us to leave behind those big bulky suitcases that we have stuffed full of pride and ego and offense or shame. Maybe God is calling us to surrender some truly heavy stuff those old conflicts we've been bearing or the grudges that we've been nursing. And as we navigate these months in a global pandemic as a church, perhaps God is using this time to strip these things away from us so that we may travel light again. That we aren't relying on ourselves. We are relying on the power of God 
to trust us and guide us, to uphold us. And so I ask you today, what kind of traveler have you been this past week? Are you traveling light? Or are you lugging around the weight of that which holds us down, which buries us, which prevents us from walking in freedom? Jesus is instructing his disciples to travel light. Well, we've seen the failure of Jesus. We've looked at the success of the disciples. And so our third and final point for this morning is this. We have been given an invitation to participate in the kingdom of God. Now, Neil Chapel reminds us of the encouragement that Jesus gives us for the work that he has planned for us. Now, I don't want you to think that you need a lot of extra equipment for this assignment. I'm telling you, put down those bags now because you are the equipment. You are the equipment. We are the means of his grace. We are the voice of his message. We are the healing of his hands. We are to be his ambassadors. And so we need to start living up to that calling. We need to start living the kingdom life that marks us as his disciples, as his children. And what will life look like? Well, verse 12 tells us the disciples preached with a joyful urgency that life can be so radically different. It says right and left, they sent those demons packing. They brought wellness to the sick. They anointed their bodies. They healed their spirits. What a wonderful vision of God's kingdom. One that's alive and vibrant and dynamic and exciting. I would love to be a part of a kingdom that looks like that. Wouldn't you? Now Jesus is not saying here that there won't be rejection. In fact, he says we're to expect it. Rejection is what eats at the soul, doesn't it? even a soul that's already saved. And so Jesus goes first and shows us what to do. Jesus always does. And Jesus showed his disciples rejection and how to cope with it and move on. Emerson Power, a professor of biblical studies at Messiah College, reminds us that rejection does not hinder the mission for long. In fact, that rejection of Jesus in his hometown, may have given an impetus to the commission of those 12 for their first assignment. He said that's why Jesus had chosen 12 in Mark chapter 3. And he was preparing them for their own mission. Finally, just before Jesus sent them out, he experienced that unexpected rejection as a signal of what was to be expected in their work in this new environment. As we close, I want to invite you today to also be a participant in the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is not far away to be experienced when we die. The kingdom of God is here. It is now. And God wants us to bring it to those places that need to experience it. And so I ask you, what is holding you down? 
What is that luggage that you're trudging along with you? What is keeping you from participating? I want to encourage you today to travel light in this kingdom, to get rid of the baggage, walk in freedom, to rejoice in your senseness as Jesus sent the 12 disciples. And may God find us faithful. I would like to have a prayer placed on the screen. I invite you to stand and read it with me as we close. Heavenly Father, your church is composed of people like me. I help make it what it is. It will be friendly if I am. Its pews will be filled if I help fill them. It will do great work if I work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I am a generous giver. It will bring other people into its worship and fellowship if I invite and bring them. It will be a church where people grow in faith and serve you if I am open to such growth and service. Therefore, with your help, Lord, we shall dedicate ourselves to the task of being all the things you want your church to be. Amen. You may be seated. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the one rejected, he took bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he invited them to take it and remember him and the sacrifice that they didn't yet understand. But in faith and in participation, they, they went for it. They shared. The body of our Lord broken for you. May you take this. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ has died for you. And then likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink this in remembrance of Christ's blood, shed for you, and be thankful. Gracious Lord, we participate in a mystery by faith that you are at work in our lives. We change our lives. We turn and we follow after you. We hear the call of the disciples to repent. Lord, guide us this week 
Speak to us as how we can be participants in your kingdom. And Lord, may we not run off ahead of you, but if we are tired and weary and we have burdens to lay down, guide us to that place of surrender where we can travel light. Thank you, Father, so much for today. Thank you for revealing your Son through the Holy Spirit to us, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Community, church, go in peace.